Well, hey there. My name is Pastor Tim, and you have found my podcast. I currently serve as the pastor of First United Methodist Church of Fort Pierce, Florida, and I'm so grateful to be able to connect with you in this way. This podcast is a collection of my sermons and teachings that I hope you will use to deepen and strengthen your connection with Jesus Christ so that you might go and transform the world around you. So kick back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode. So have you ever been in like a, a tight spot in life, like whether because of, you know, decisions that you have made or just the circumstances that, that life has given to you, you just kind of in this place where you find yourself waiting, hoping that an opportunity might arise for you to be relieved and lifted into a new set of circumstances. Maybe you'd just been waiting on a call from one of those many, many, many jobs that you applied for, or waiting for some kind of reliable transportation to come through, waiting for some kind of help to come your way to resource you, to handle your medical health or the health of a loved one, waiting for some help for a child who has a learning or behavioral disability. You know, regardless of the particular situation, we've all found ourselves in this place at some moment in our lives, right? Basically just sitting there at the, the, the whim of fate, waiting on the generosity of another person or on the mercy of God. This is the reality of Advent. This is what Advent is all about. We remember that for 400 years, the people of Israel waited in darkness for a Messiah. They waited generation after generation after generation, being passed from under the thumb of one miserable empire to the next, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and finally, Rome, waiting, hoping, wondering, will our time ever come? The waiting game was nothing new to our ancient Israelite neighbors. Heck, it's nothing new for us, right? Here we are, again, 2,000 years later, still waiting for Christ to come again. But particularly when we look at the history of Israel, we find that this waiting game is woven all throughout their history. They basically almost always existed between a rock and a hard place. The Hebrew scriptures highlight this reality over and over and over again, both in the big picture story of what God is doing through humanity and Israel, and in the intricate stories of individual characters. See, what we find in our Bibles is that sometimes the most unexpected people are given a chance to escape an impossible situation and have their lives changed forever. And some of these people 
had their names immortalized in the lineage of Jesus Christ. And some of them were most notably female. And so we're in the midst of our Advent sermon series, which is called Bad Company, where we are looking at some of the curious female names that are mentioned in Jesus's family tree at the beginning of the New Testament. And we're seeing how certain outsiders, people who don't belong, people who by virtue of their past and perhaps even their present occupation would be considered bad company at your family dinner party. We're seeing how these folks have been invited by Jesus to come and sit at his table, to come and be members of his family. Mostly, though, we are seeing how this translates as a message of hope for people like you and me in this season of Advent who may need to find a little bit of hope in dark places. So in the very beginning of the New Testament, the part of the Bible where Jesus arrives on the scene, the gospel writer Matthew gives us a list of Jesus' ancestors. It's called a genealogy. And what we've been looking at is the women who are included in that list because women weren't typically included in a genealogical art piece of work. Last week, we talked about the first woman who shows up, a lady named Tamar. And so we'll pick up right after she's mentioned until we find our next character of note. This is Matthew chapter 1, beginning at verse 3. It says, And Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. She's last week. Old news. And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Aram, and Aram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon. And Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boom. There we have it already. Rahab. Who the heck is Rahab? Why is her name in Jesus' family tree? Well, let's find out, shall we? We are in this part of Israel's story, okay? This is, this is where we're at. Moses has led the people out of Egypt and onward towards the promised land. God promised them the land of Canaan, which is the land that God said to their ancestor Abraham, you and your descendants will possess. And so what they've done is they've, they've escaped slavery and they've wandered through the wilderness for 40 years trying to figure out what the heck it looks like to live as a community and what it might look like for them to actually listen to and follow God. And they stink at it, right? So finally, after an entire generation, the entire wilderness generation, save for a few different people, have passed away, the Israelites finally are at this place in their history where God says, it's time for you to enter the promised land. So they cross the Jordan River, led by a man named Joshua. But there's a slight problem with the promised land. Other people already live there, particularly people named Canaanites, which makes sense because it's the land of Canaan, right? 
So the Canaanites are inhabiting the land, and the problem with the Canaanites is they're bad news, like bad news bears, all the way around, like not, not a good scene for God's people to try and cohabitate with. They're pretty nasty when it comes to military strength, and particularly super nasty when it comes to their religious practices. The Canaanite religion was known for child sacrifice, temple prostitution, and just all the things that really made God say, I don't like this. So God tells Joshua that they've got to take over the land, and it's going to require a military fight. They're going to have to destroy all of the Canaanite religion. And the first place that they're going to go and do this is a military stronghold city called Jericho. Thanks, God. And so that leads us up to Joshua chapter 2. And so this is going to set the scene. It says, Then Joshua, son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And so they went and they entered the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab. And they spent the night there. The king of Jericho was told, Some Israelites have come here tonight to search out the land. All right, so this is, this is the scene, right? Joshua sends spies to go and figure out, like, where's the weak points in this military city? And so they find a hospitable place to spend the night at the home of a woman named Rahab. And here she is. Surprise. She's bad company. I bet you didn't see that coming. <laughs> so Rahab is a practitioner of the oldest and only profession that women had the opportunity to have in the ancient world. We don't know what caused her to take up this profession. I'm just going out on a limb and saying when she was a schoolgirl, she didn't say, when I grow up, I want to be a lady of the night. <laughs> but at some point in time in her life, she found herself in a hopeless situation. Either she was widowed or her family racked up some kind of debt that she needed to pay off. Otherwise, they would be sold into slavery. Regardless she finds herself in a bit of a bind, uh, between a rock and a hard place, if you will, in a hopeless situation. Though she seems to have made the best of it because she's famous. She has excelled at her craft so well because when the king of Jericho finds out that there are outsiders spying out the land, the first thought that comes to his mind is, I know where they are. They're at Rahab's house. You know that lady, right? Yeah. So the king goes to Rahab's house, and he's like, knock, knock, knock. Hey, guess what? It's me. He's probably been there before. And, um, and he says, like, hey, I heard that you're harboring some Israelite spies. I need you to bring them out. And Rahab does something curious. She tells the king, I don't they're left. They gone. They came, they paid, they left, right? But all the while, they're still there, which leads us to wonder, like, what is the motivation here? She's, she's committing treason, right? She's harboring spies. She is 
going against everything that she's ever known, her culture, her society, her people. So why would she do this? The Israelite spies have the same question. So picking up in verse 8, they're up on the rooftop. It says, before they went to sleep, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the dread of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt in fear before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites that were beyond the Jordan to Sion and Og whom you utterly destroyed. As soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. There was no courage left in any of us because of you. The Lord your God is indeed God in heaven above and on earth below. So Rahab is like, hey, um, my life is not what I want, and this God that you have, I'd like to be a part of it. She's heard what God did in delivering the people from Egypt and then into the promised land, and she wants in. And in the following verses, what she does is she pleads with the spies to spare her life and the life of her family. And the spies agree. And she sneaks them out of the city with a plan. And she has faith that this God who delivered this people from a broken past of slavery and oppression will also save her from her broken past and restore her. And so later on in the story, it's time for the city of Jericho to fall at the hands of the Israelites. And this is what Joshua says. He says, says, Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, go into the prostitute's house and bring the woman out of it and all who belong to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought Rahab out, along with her father, her mother, her brothers, and all who belonged to her. They brought all of her kindred out and set them outside the camp of Israel. They burned down the city and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute, With her family and all who belong to her, Joshua spared. Her family has lived in Israel ever since, for she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. And so Joshua remembers Rahab's kindness. Even though she is a Canaanite and a woman who has practiced a sinful lifestyle, her admission that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is the true God, And that the land belongs to Israel is all that Joshua needs in order to believe that she will be faithful and to fulfill the oath that the spies had made to her. This woman, whose name Rahab is even a bit of an innuendo about her occupation in the Semitic language that the Canaanites spoke, has her identity rearranged. She goes from a woman, a foreign woman, whose name literally means open, who practiced a lifestyle of opening her home to men for a price, has now been invited to become a part of the family of God, to become a part 
of the nation of Israel. And then a thousand plus years later, she is invited to be the great, great, great ancestor to the Messiah of Israel, God in human form, Jesus Christ himself. And the question is why? Like, this woman is bad news. She's bad company, right? Like, this is not who you invite over to dinner with the folks. The author of Hebrews, a thousand years later, writes this as the reason why. This is Hebrews eleven, thirty-one. 31. It says, By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish, with those who were disobedient because she had received the spies in peace. Faith was all that was required. She admitted that Yahweh was king. And that was good enough. But I just want to take a moment for us to notice one thing about the treatment of Rahab particularly her name, and Jesus' family tree. It's the only place in Scripture where Rahab's name is mentioned without some sort of caveat pointing to her occupation. It's like even here, in this boring list of names that everyone skips over, Jesus has redeemed her, liberated her from the shackles of her past. She's no longer Rahab the prostitute. It says that she is Rahab, the mother of Boaz. And Boaz, who we'll talk about next week, turns out to be a very important character. He's the great-granddaddy of King David. His outsider, Rahab, gives birth to the line of the greatest king Israel ever knew. Rahab found herself in one of those really tight spots in life. Whether the circumstances for her being there, or surrounding her occupation, or something else. It's clear that she was waiting for something, for someone to show up and invite her to something better, to something bigger, to something more. She was looking for a place to belong. And I don't know about you, but I've felt that so many times in my own life. Like, like, God, come please show me that I'm not alone in this world. Show me that the sum total of my circumstances are not going to define me forever. Send me help. And help me to recognize that help when it arrives. You know, you may be feeling this way yourself. Perhaps you're feeling a bit lost, a bit alone in your life right now. Maybe this is your first Advent and holiday season without a loved one. Or it feels like the first one all over again because grief doesn't have a time limit. Maybe, if you're honest, there's not a whole lot of holiday cheer in you for whatever reason. Your family situation is all messed up or it's separated by continents or oceans or relations that are just weird. Maybe the world is just so darn broken right now that you can't feel the holiday cheer. If that's you, I get it. 
This time of year seems to pick up as much baggage as it can as life goes on. But let me offer you this. The one who redeemed the baggage of an ancient Canaanite prostitute and called her his own is waiting and wanting to do the same for you. This season, when we strip it down, is all about the reality that God came to earth to rearrange everything, including our lives. And I know that it doesn't seem to ever happen on our own timetable. But I promise you that Jesus is actively working in your life to take you out from between that rock and that hard place and to set you free from whatever or wherever you find yourself. But if you're doing good, living the dream, no complaints, my word for you is to be like Joshua. Be the extended arm of Jesus that reaches into the broken and jammed up lives of those who are struggling. Offer them a chance to belong, to be a part of something bigger, to know that they are loved and that they are valued and part of God's family. Friends, we have been given this wonderful hope that Christmas wasn't just a single event that happened one night in Bethlehem. Rather, that Christmas is something real that we live out in our hearts and in our lives every single time that the love of Jesus Christ flows through us and into the world around us. The incarnation, God's love made real and tangible in the face of a baby boy who grew up to be a man who took the cross on our behalf is just as real today as it was 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem. The question is, will you see it? And will you live it? Will you let it become who you are this Advent season? Let's pray. God, we thank you that you redeem busted up, broken messes like Rahab, like us that you have the power and the willingness to do so for every person. And so we name in our hearts those people that desperately need to know that, that you are a God of a million chances, that you are a God who brings hope into dark places. It's written that the, the light shone in the darkness, and the darkness could not overcome it. So God, we just ask that you would show us that light if we find ourselves in dark places. And God, that you would be that light in and through us. That we would see and shine your light into the darkness of our families, of our, our friendships and our community, into the dark places that our world finds itself in still today. And we wait with hopeful expectation 
and the anticipation that, that you will come, that there is more to this world than this, that you have a plan that is much greater and much bigger than we could ever imagine, that this world will eventually be a place where there's no more weeping, there's no more sorrow, where there's no more pain, where you, the king, will be seated on the throne. You'll wipe away the tears from our eyes. And this world will be made whole. But until that day comes, Jesus, we, we ask that you would show us how to be a people, an Advent people, a people who wait, not with idle hands, saying, woe is us and woe is me, but a people who will actively work to make this place look like the kingdom to come. And that all that we would do would point to the reality of the king who is to come. And so come, Lord Jesus. Come, speak into our hearts. Speak through our mouths. Speak through the ways that we love. It's in your mighty and precious name we pray. Amen.